Do you remember King Jehoram and his people as they were in such desperate straits? The walls of Israel's capital city of Samaria were surrounded by the vastly superior army of the Syrian king Ben-Hadad. The Israelites were trapped behind the walls of Samaria and they were slowly starving to death. The dung of doves and a donkey's head were sold for food at exorbitant prices. Parents ate their children to stay alive and people drank their urine to survive. There was utterly no hope. King Jehoram and the Israelites could do nothing but wait for death. Let that sit there for a while. And let's think back over these last several weeks as we have come face to face with the reality of our sin in the pages of Scripture. And the picture is really not unlike that of the besieged Israelites in some sense. We've considered that our Creator God is a perfect being full of infinite love and grace. He is the infinite source of all goodness. Fellowship with Him is the source of all human joy. And so in His infinite wisdom and unmeasured loyalty to us. In His unbounded love, He commands us to love Him with our entire being, heart and mind and soul and strength. It's what is right. It is what is good. It is His mercy to us to command this. Yet we continue to violate His law. We lust after other gods. We choose to do it our way not His way, over and over again. In body, in mind, in will, we are corrupt to the core of our being, bent against the law of God and bent against this One who loves us infinitely. And the wages of such sin is damnation. In a sense, our natural sinful condition mirrors that of the besieged citizens of Samaria under King Jehoram. Like the Israelites, we cannot improve our position. It's not an option. We are dead in transgressions and sins. Behind the walls of this city, we're dead. Dead men and women walking. Like the Israelites, we cannot wish away our calamity either. We are alienated from the life of God and subject to His just judgment. Like the Israelites, ignorance of the besieging enemy is no protection against it. We could say there's a baby here that doesn't know the Syrian army's outside the wall. It makes no difference. There's someone who's not heard yet that the Syrian army is outside the wall. It makes no difference. We are dead in sins. We are under the judgment of God. So as the well-fed Syrian army hovers like vultures around the starving Samaritans, and as that army sought to break through the wall and vent its anger on the Israelites in time, so our sin breaks in upon us and spells our utter ruin. There is no hope. The biblical vision paints this picture. You don't have to search for it in the corners and sort of shake it out. 
From cover to cover, this is the picture it wants us to get, to sense our desperate spiritual state. It is not a book that is intended to build our self-esteem. It is a book that is intended to help us face reality, the reality of our sin, to realize our absolute moral corruption, to realize we are objects of God's holy anger and judgment against sinners. The only hope is divine intervention. Only God can rescue us from this hopeless darkness. But there's a problem there, isn't there? We have offended this God. It is God's holy law that we have broken. It is God's love that we have spurned. It is God's glory that we have despised. And God's judgment then that we fully deserve. But it is in light of this horrifying realization of our utter despair that we encounter good news on the pages of Scripture. Let that thought hang on a hook in your mind. By God's grace, we'll return to it later. But there is in Scripture good news. Paul's letter to the Romans reveals a glorious message of hope despite our sinfulness. And I encourage you to turn to chapter 5 of Romans. Romans chapter 5, where we read, beginning at verse 6, that Jesus died for rebellious sinners, demonstrating God's gracious love. He alone can save us, and He alone has moved to do so. Jesus died for rebellious sinners, demonstrating God's gracious love. Verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Notice the word weak. It refers to our natural sinful condition. Our state before God. It is, as Mool writes, a gentle euphemism for our utter impotence. We were weak. We were incompetent. We were dead behind the walls of our own sin. But at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. At the right time, certainly encompassing the idea of God's sovereign plan in the right time. But it may refer more simply just to the time of our weakness. At the right time, when we were desperate and without hope, at that time, God sent Christ to die for the ungodly. It was in our state of helpless, desperate rebellion against God, in our utter moral incapacity and alienation from God, that Christ died for the ungodly. Now notice there the word for. It is a crucial word. When Jesus died on the cross, He died for us. What does that mean? It means that He chose to substitute His body in the place of the sinner's body. He chose to take the judgment that was owed to us and make it His own. He died for us in that way. Or as Galatians 3.13 says, He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us in our place. Romans 4.25, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Romans 8 and verse 32, God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. Put Jesus' body where our body should be. 
taking the judgment that was ours. This is to say that Jesus then suffered the death that ungodly sinners deserve to suffer, dying for them. As people come into the membership of our church, we ask that they demonstrate a knowledge of salvation in Christ. And we often ask about this very word, for. When you say that Jesus died for you, many times Christians are fairly foggy on that point. He died for us. I haven't really thought through how to explain that word, for. But we need to get this. This needs to be part of the culture of our church and our understanding. That dying for someone does not mean that he simply died as an example. It does not mean that he simply had us on his mind in some way, that he died for us in this sense, but that he died as our substitute in our place, paying the penalty of our sin. He died for us this way. Now this is really a most remarkable thing, something that we will consider throughout all eternity and praise the Lamb for. Verse 7 says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So verse 7, there's indeed occasions when people will sacrifice their lives to save innocent people, as we say. Even more will die to spare the life of a good person. This is not easy or common, but it happens. Mind returns again to the two Amish schoolgirls in Pennsylvania who in October of 2006 were taken hostage within their one-room schoolhouse by a crazed gunman. These brave girls, these two girls, asked their captor to shoot them first, hoping that it would create opportunity for the younger girls to escape. Rather than plotting the means of their own escape, they sacrificed their lives for others. I read this in our paper when that happened. And I can tell you, I haven't read a lot of stories like that in our newspaper. This doesn't happen very often. That someone will stand in the place of another and say, take my life in the place of this one. But it does happen. Occasionally. Rarely. For a good person, someone may dare to die. But what we read in verse 8, you never read in the newspaper. You've never read in human history outside of those who are responding to this very same grace. God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for us as sinners confused by the fact that we were sinners. We were His enemies. We were in rebellion against Him. God's love is qualitatively different than the love occasionally demonstrated in sacrificial death, verse 7. God gave His Son, verse 8, to die not for innocent sufferers, but for guilty sinners, for His enemies. F.F. Bruce paraphrases, even for one who is just or good, you will scarcely find anyone willing to lay down his life. Well, perhaps a few people might go so far as to do so. But God's love is seen in Christ laying down his life for those who were neither just nor good, but ungodly sinners. This is extraordinarily good news We were destined to die for our sin, but Jesus died in our place. His sacrificial, substitutionary payment of the penalty of our sin was something we could never earn, could never merit, 
or even instigate due to our condition of moral incapacity. But through simple faith in this death, we are united to Christ and declared righteous, verse 1, justified by faith. And the love of God is poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, verse 5. Did you sense that love as we sang today? The Holy Spirit pouring out the love of God in your heart, responding to what Christ has done for you as a sinner. How should we respond to a God who loves us in this manner? When we consider the depth of our sin, as we have been striving to do over the last three weeks, and when we put together here that God died for us in our sin, the only proper response is joy is to rejoice in what God has done. It is thanksgiving, to give Him thanks, to love Him with all of our heart, to obey His Word. What other response could there be? And I would warn all of us today, to any to whom this applies, if you never experience joy when you consider what Christ has done for you, if there's no passion to love God, no willingness to obey Him, even when it's hard, if you don't have that sense when you consider the work that Jesus Christ has done, you must seriously question whether He's done that work for you, whether you've trusted Him by faith. Now certainly there will be periods of dryness in our hearts. I fight that dryness on row one here all the time. When we worship together as a church, for me, this is battleground. Because my thoughts can go in other places. My body's often fatigued. And we can be so distracted. To me, it's a battleground where we fight for the joy of our souls. For that passionate love and that willing obedience of heart to the Lord. But do you sense it? I thank God for those times when He stirs my soul Striving for that every time that we gather here as a body of believers. But there are times of dryness. There are times when nothing seems to resonate within. But if you hear this message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen, and it's just dull fact to you, you need to fear. Has the Holy Spirit poured out the love of God in your heart that responds to the love of God for you? You should sense that. You should know that joy. If we really get it, we're going to want to love God with all of our hearts. I don't. I stand before you as a sinner. That depth of love with all of my heart and soul and mind and strength is lacking in me. But I think I'm right and know my heart to say, I want it. I want to love him with all that I have, and I know what he's done for me. It is amazing grace. How should we respond to God? How should we respond to others in light of this truth? Do you actively reach out to unlovely people? That is what God has done for us, and if we really get it, we're going to do the same in our life, to reach out to those who are unlovely. And I ask the question to myself and to all of us, can you list people 
with whom you have actively sought to make peace and to break down walls of alienation? Can you name anyone on this planet you are right now seeking to sacrificially love other than someone you like? I mean, it takes a bit of selflessness to sacrificially live for the people we like. But do you sacrificially live for anybody that you don't like? Can you name anyone that you're living for in this way? In your church, in your neighborhood, among your family, among those that you know? If not, again, we ask the question, has, if we have this cold heart toward everyone that's unlovely, toward those that are at odds with us, do we really understand the implications of of the gospel of Jesus Christ? You know, there's an awful lot of talk among Christians in our culture about being a good friend. And there's a place for that. We should be loyal in our friendships. But at the end of the day, a lot of such talk really boils down to loving those that you like. Where is the talk about loving those who are our enemies. Loving those who are absolutely unlovely. That is precisely how God loved us. And if we get it, that's going to be an effort in our life to live that way toward others. Who is it that's unlovely? Who is it that you don't necessarily like that you're living sacrificially to love? When we genuinely perceive what God has done for us through the death of Jesus... We will respond by loving our enemies and seeking to reconcile with the alienated. This is a glorious truth with massive implications for our life. Jesus died for rebellious sinners, demonstrating God's gracious love. We find secondly, beginning at verse 9, that Jesus died for rebellious sinners, securing their eternal glory. In verse 9, Paul begins to spell out the implications of our justification by means of Christ's death. He says in verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, that is, we have been declared righteous by the death that Jesus died in our place, as we've come to place our faith and our trust in that, we have been declared righteous. Now much more, middle verse 9, shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. What is that saying? If Jesus sacrificed his life in order to justify sinners, will he not make sure they escape God's wrath on Judgment Day? They stand justified. If he loved them sacrificially when they were his alienated enemies, will he not stand up for them at the judgment now that they have become his reconciled friends? The work of justification accomplished on the cross and appropriated by faith will find its consummation in the final deliverance of the believer from God's eternal judgment. So the assurance of our final deliverance does not rest then in our good deeds, but in Christ's finished work on the cross. And verse 10 supports that point further. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. The lost sinner is alienated from God. The lost sinner idolatrously rebels against God's law. And God is angered by the sinner's moral rebellion. 
In this state of alienation, God and sinners are enemies. God is angry with our sin, but He is also angry with sinners. The wrath of God does not rest nebulously upon the concept of sin. The wrath of God rests on the heads of those who sin. Thankfully, mercifully, God loves sinners. He chooses to sacrifice Himself in their behalf for their justification. His love is so great that He ordains the death of Jesus as the means by which we may be reconciled to Him. Now, this is the point. If God takes the initiative to reconcile guilty sinners to Himself, He can be trusted to save those same now reconciled sinners on Judgment Day. This is why we come to funerals with hope when there's a testimony of faith in Jesus Christ. It is one thing, arguing from the greater to the lesser throughout these two verses in 9 and 10, It's one thing to illustrate for an inmate to be pardoned from his crimes. It's a hard thing. But if the governor comes and pardons a criminal of his crimes, it's really just a matter of time and really a foregone conclusion that he'll actually be given the papers to walk out of prison, right? We have been pardoned as the enemies of God. There is no question that we will stand before Him forgiven. Jesus' death secures our justification. His life, our final salvation. We stand right before Him. And I ask the question for you personally then. Have you been justified by faith in Jesus' death in your place and in His resurrection? Have you trusted that message? If you have, do you realize that the final verdict has already been passed? Judgment has already been done. You stand justified. You stand in a forgiven state and will throughout all eternity. And this is our confidence in this life. I encourage you. We, we can, there's a danger in all of this. There's the danger of saying we know these things. Jesus died in my place to pay the penalty of my sin. I was a sinner and God's wrath rested on me. But I've been delivered from that. I know these things. I, I have this concept in my mind. But the danger is to then somehow put this concept on the shelf. No, this is at the very heart of our sanctification. We need to put down deep stakes into what God has done because the security of our souls rests in this work of grace. And when the storms of life break against your soul, this will be your anchor point. Your anchor point will be that come what may, my soul is secure in Jesus Christ. He has declared me righteous. There is no condemnation. I know that when I stand before Him, I will stand forgiven and I will be glorified in His presence. I have confidence in that. That's a confidence this world doesn't understand. They're living for the security of insurance policies. I mean, think of it. They're living for retirement plans to kick in. They're living for the things of this earth 
There should be a difference that is written all over our faces that pours out of our souls that our security is not based in some document we purchase or some money we put away that's going to burn in the end. Our security is based in what Jesus Christ has done for us so that we know we will stand before God forgiven for all eternity. There's a day we aren't going to have to work anymore in that sense to secure our livelihood There's going to be a day when we have no more fears, no more sin, no more death, no more sorrow, and it's the work that Jesus has done that gives me that assurance now in this life and makes everything here pale in comparison. That's our anchor point. That's our solid ground. Jesus died for me. He gave me life. And there's more. Jesus died for rebellious sinners, demonstrating God's gracious love. Verses 6 through 8. Jesus died for rebellious sinners, securing their eternal glory. Verses 9 and 10. But verse 11, Jesus died for rebellious sinners, putting praise in their mouths. More than that, verse 11, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. We rejoice. Once we were enemies of God, alienated, condemned, under wrath, rebellious and hopeless. But Christian, when you placed your personal faith in the substitutionary death of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you were transformed from a blasphemer to a singer. I don't mean necessarily just the actual act of singing, but within your heart there is a song. Something happened. At a point in time, recognizable or not specifically, the believer is transformed from an enemy of God into his child. Did you hear the phrase? Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. Well, that struck my heart this morning as we sung it. That ray that came down and shot from God His grace into my soul and into my heart and the chains melted off. Still a sinner, I'm freed from that bondage and freed from that penalty in that moment of time. We become a singer. Now joy fills our once empty souls. You notice the phrase now. We have now received reconciliation contrasting to an unstated then. From birth, you were alienated from the life of God, an unforgiven sinner, but something happened at that point where you were transformed. And I ask you, earnestly and pointedly, wake up, ask the question, Have you experienced this transformation of soul? One of the tests might be is how you find all this talk of sin. There's a lot of churches in which the talk of sin is kind of dressing on the plate. It's sort of got to be there. The whole concept of salvation doesn't really work, but we want to move past it and get beyond it. We've sat down in three weeks talking about our sin. We've faced it in its depth. Through Adam, to the very core of our being, every last one of us sinners, 
by acts of commission and omission and also by nature. We are sinners to the core. We are in desperate straits. But when we talk about those kinds of things, does that make you feel uncomfortable? You really don't like all the sin talk. And you might be saying really in the quiet of your heart, are we really all that bad? It might be evidence that you've not experienced this transformation in your own heart. I find, in fact, I think it's really a pattern of sanctification. That what we do through life as we grow closer to God is come to understand the depth of our sin more and more. We don't set it off to the side and say, yeah, that was, that was you know, a life that I once lived. Like somebody, you know, maybe has got a bad habit of some sort and they break the habit and they move on and go, yeah, I kind of remember those days. It, it, it isn't that way. It's not to be that way. We actually come to understand our sin as a part of the package of what salvation is and who we are. And we understand it more and more. We come to understand its depths in all of its ugliness. To be humbled by the darkness of our souls. We never get past that or beyond that. We don't need to. That's not morbid thought. It's not going to hold us back. Not if it is matched by the glory of God's saving grace. So do we sense the time when we were alienated from God and became not any longer His enemy, but His child? Do you know there was such a time when you were delivered from the hopelessness of sin and given salvation in Jesus? And do you continue to deepen in your knowledge of just how sinful you were and just how glorious God's resurrection is? I think we should respond. I'm just going to mention two ways, but first with a rejoicing spirit. Do you have it? I wonder if people around you know, if people around me know that there is peace in our hearts as joy wells up from within our spirits. Would they characterize us as people of joy? I'm not talking about silly, giddy happiness all the time. Somebody who just has a Pollyannish view of life, nothing could ever go wrong kind of thing. But a real, genuine joy of spirit that people see and look at. They're resting in friends and the way they look, and the clothes they wear, and the insurance policies, and the retirement plans. And that's where they're, they're resting in nothing. Do they sense that you're resting in something that's solid and eternal? And does it show itself in the joy on, on your face and that wells up from your very presence and your being? There should be a rejoicing spirit that comes if we really understand what Jesus has done for us. I think there should be a rejoicing song as well. I don't want to say that this is all that rejoicing is by any means, but I think it applies to the singing of our hearts and even to our voices. Do you think of our singing as a church, for instance, as merely traditional accommodation to the musically talented of the church? It's kind of a tradition that's developed and just something we kind of have to do for all the musical kinds of people among us. Or if you're more musically inclined, do you think our corporate singing is an accommodation to you? You're really hoping that there's always musical people here so we can keep singing songs. This has nothing to do with it, obviously, does it? The reality is that music is a unique language that allows us to express together the worth and the beauty of God and to rejoice in His saving grace to sinners. 
When we come together to sing as a church, we're not here to do some preliminary things that are traditional. We gather to sing as a church that we might express together the joy that's in our heart that was sung in the shower and was sung in the car when we were alone and was sung in our hearts somewhere that week. A song of joy and rejoicing that we pulled together and yeah, we put things together a bit nicely and try to choose the right theme and the right words, but we're bringing it together that we together might rejoice in the salvation that we have in Christ week after week after week. Is that joy in your heart? Is that love for God there? Indeed, on this whole point of the musically inclined and the musically less than inclined, I think some of the most joyful song that I've ever heard in my life has come from people that don't have a clue about music. And it's kind of painful to sit next to them in the pew, honestly, when we're singing sometimes. But I I give you a list of names of people that rejoice to sing, not because they got any musical talent at all, but because God has put a song in their heart. They're alive in Christ. When the Holy Spirit pours out the love of God into our hearts, it bubbles up, it wells out, and we want to rejoice in the greatness and goodness of God. And so we sing as a church. Indeed, the Christian church has a very unique history of song. It's unmatched and unparalleled by any other religion. There's a reason for that. It is because of the grace of God that we sing. Indeed, where there is a redeemed church, we are singing in the Spirit. The Spirit of God who witnesses to the presence of Christ in this world is singing within us and rejoicing in the triune being and the grace of God. Now, did you notice as we go through this passage, all of the passive ideas, Christ died for the ungodly, verse 6. Christ died for us, verse 8. We have now been justified, verse 9. We shall be saved, verse 9. We were reconciled. Verse 10, we shall be saved. Verse 10, we have received reconciliation. Verse 11, you know what the beauty is in all of these passive ideas? The beauty is God has acted. God has intervened. Only God could save us from our sin. And He has come down to do just that. And the key in our Christian walk as this series begins to bend its way toward that theme. The key in our Christian walk is to know this and to meditate on it. Young people, perhaps this is a battle for you among all. You've heard all of these things in Sunday school, and you say, I understand all this. I get it. Let me say, first of all, you really don't. Because for the rest of eternity, we're going to be coming to understand more and more what it means that Jesus died for us and rose again. You don't see it for all that it is, nor do I. It's a deep, deep well. But let me take you from there to just don't say that we know it all. But for all of us as the followers of Christ, we need to understand that it is remembering and considering and meditating on what Jesus has done for us that is part and parcel that is organic to our sanctification. If you set the death and resurrection of Christ aside as something you've already figured out, you are passing up 
the very means of your sanctification. This work of Christ is to be at the very heart of our being and it's to flow out in every area of our lives. It brings me back to Ben-Hadad's army in 2 Kings. What happened that day? Remember those four men? It was getting to be nighttime. The sun was setting. Israel's in this horrible situation behind the walls of Samaria. And there were four lepers that were living out at the entrance of Samaria's gate, and they decided that death was soon to overcome them. Lepers, by the way, not leopards, but lepers, that is, people with a disease. They couldn't live inside the city normally because of their leprosy, so they were out at the gate, and they realized it was time to die. If they stayed there, it was all over. So they couldn't really go into the city. There was no food there. And no one was going to share their child with a leper. So in a desperate plan, they decided to go to the well-stocked camp of the Syrian army. They kind of went out there with their arms open and said, if we die, we die. To quote them, 2 Kings 7, 4, if they spare our lives, we shall live, and if they kill us, we shall but die. We're going to die anyway. The food's not behind the wall. The food's out there in the enemy camp. Let's go see if we can get some. Sun is setting. They go out to the camp. And to their utter amazement, it is completely empty of people. Every last soldier of the Syrian army was gone. And they took nothing with them. In a unique miracle, God had caused the Syrian army to hear the sound of chariots and of horses, and the sound of a great army, so that they panicked and fled in such haste that they didn't stop to pick up a morsel of food. Oh, here's these four men. They are on the verge of starvation. They go into this camp and they begin to eat the food and to drink the drink that is there and they're tucking away gold and silver and running throughout having satiated their bellies finally when their conscience struck them. There's people back in the city that are starving to death. What are we doing here? God has been very good to us to feed us this day, but he's going to judge us if we don't tell them about it. So what did they do? They went back to the city gates of Samaria and they declared good news. Good news. Now, what would they have declared if they had gone and found the Syrian army was mounting an attack and was going to finalize the siege? If they had had any opportunity to get away, they'd have gone back to the city gates and they would have said, Guys, we advise you to get ready. The enemy's coming. I mean, there wouldn't have been much anybody could do, but at least they'd know that the enemy was coming. But that would be about it. Maybe they would set a few things up to get ready for this siege and for this trial, but wasn't much they could really do. But that's not what happened, is it? It's interesting that in chapter 7 and verse 9, it says the enemy had been defeated and the men returned with, and the text uses the phrase, good news. They returned with good news. That's a very different message than there's an assault coming. False religions, as several have pointed out, send advisors 
instructing you on how to better your situation. Think of this. The false religion sends advisors about how you can be a better person. You're beset in this situation with sin all around, and you're instructed about how you can become a better person. It's advice. Here's how you can pick yourself up and change. What does Christianity send? It sends heralds who proclaim good news. Good news concerning a cosmic victory that has been won. Satan has been defeated. Death has been crushed. Forgiveness has been provided for sinners. Can you imagine the rejoicing of the Israelites the night those four lepers reported the good news and their word was confirmed? Can you imagine the celebrating that night as torches and candles were lit and people glutted themselves on the food that was now available in abundance? They'd received good news. It wasn't about an advancing army that was going to come and attack them. It wasn't advice. It was the good news that something had been done for them, that God had acted in their behalf. And so it is for us. We declare the gospel. We declare the good news. The only response to the forgiveness of sinners through the victory won by Jesus on the cross is to rejoice. Something we could never do on our own, God has done for us in the person of Jesus. And we respond to that good news rejoicing, and we declare that good news to a lost world that they might rejoice with us, having responded in faith to Christ crucified and risen. This is why we sing. If all we had received from glory was advice on how to be better people than we are, we would show up on this front wall pictures of ourselves. We're heeding the advice. Here's the wise ones among us. Let's look at their picture and glory in their goodness because they're listening to what the message is about how to become better people. That's not what's going to sustain singing. A singing heart is sustained by the fact that something's been done for us. That though we deserve nothing but the judgment of God, He has met us in His mercy with grace. And because Jesus died, He cancels the sin of those who believe. That's a song that is never going to get old. Not through this life and not through all eternity. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, words fail us to bring the glory to your name that we should issue. But I pray, Father, in behalf of anyone who is separated from Christ, who does not truly know the joy of sins forgiven. I pray, Father, for that one's salvation. I ask that any such a person would come to a place where they understand what Jesus has done and embrace Him as their Savior and Lord. I pray, Father, for those of us who know You, that we would be rebuked for our dead hearts, our coldness. 
in fact, thanking you that our hearts have been made alive. But Lord, I pray that that life would show itself, that we would rejoice, love the unlovely, and serve you with all of our heart and soul. We thank you for what you've done for us in Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.